Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature climate fix flicks, kinky crickets, and standing out from the hive. But first up, you may remember that earlier in the year, we talked about the parental side of assassin bugs and lactating cockroaches with the fabulous Dr. James Gilbert. This time, he joins us in the studio with Dr. Julianne Popple, to talk about kinky crickets and their world record-breaking balls. Thanks for joining us, James. Hi. So, I'm going to cut through the foreplay and go straight to the big question. (laughs) Just how big are bush cricket testicles? Well, if I said 70 milligrams, you probably wouldn't be that impressed, but then I could probably put that in context and say the the cricket itself is more like a gram in weight, Um, and if you're still not impressed by that, um, if you translated that onto an 80 kilogram human being, you're talking about 14% of its body weight, which means that you'd probably have two human heads dangling below your legs. So it kind of puts it into a bit more perspective. I think it's quite impressively sized organs these crickets have. Yes, it's a rather disturbingly visual perspective, but thanks, James. (laughs) Okay, so now for the predictable question. When it comes to crickets and their balls, does size matter? Well, yeah, we found that it does, but not in quite the way that you'd imagine. Researchers onto this kind of uh, on, on this kind of topic in the past have looked across the animal kingdom and, and, and looked at the sizes, the relative sizes of testes in the animal kingdom. And what we find is a, there's a, a general pattern that you can see across most animals where um, the more times females tend to mate in in that species, the more promiscuous females are, the bigger the balls are on the males. And that's a pattern that you can see across loads and loads of things, including primates, um, and we fit into the same pattern. Uh, And the way we've assumed that that works is that uh, if a female mates with more than one male, that means that you're having to compete inside them inside the female for, for fertilisation. Sperm competition. Exactly, sperm yeah. competition. So, and, and, and the way we've assumed that that uh, males would respond to that is by trying to trying to have as many tickets in the lottery as possible, and so to so to pump as much sperm into the female, flood out the competition. And, and, and to put as much in as possible in order to, to get the, the biggest um, chance of fertilising the offspring. And so all of that would predict that the, the, the bigger that your balls are, the more sperm would be produced in an ejaculate, which is borne out if you look in primates and if you look in other animals. But what we found was completely the opposite pattern, which was really surprising. Really? So we looked across 21 species of crickets, and we, we found that... in and, as you'd predict, the more promiscuous the females are, the, uh, the, the, the bigger the balls are on the males. But that pattern was also... Um, uh, we also found that the bigger the balls are on the males, the less sperm they put in per ejaculate, which was really surprising. And so size must matter in some different kind of way for these crickets. So why do you think this is the case, that they have like less ejaculate per mating? Right. Okay, so... If you think about it, there are, there are two hypotheses that, that were actually around in the literature before 
uh, before we did this study. The first is what I just explained to you, that, that sperm competition is driving these, um, um, these big, bald males. But there's a second hypothesis, and that is that um, if you imagine uh, every, every time a, a male mates with a female, there's a... Um, every time a female mates there must be a male involved so more times female mate that um, translates into more opportunities for the males to mate and so if females are being promiscuous males then have a lot more opportunities to mate and so we think that maybe the uh, um, the big testes allow them to reload quickly in order to take advantage of that those increased opportunities so it allows some kind of rapid fire mating which would which would be consistent with the idea that they're they're delivering less sperm in more packets makes sense but i'm curious how exactly do you measure ejaculate volume from a bush cricket i'm getting a mental image of a small white room and a very tiny cup (laughs) Not, not quite like that. Not quite like that. We're quite lucky with the bush crickets in that what they tend to do is they they transfer something called a spermatophore, um, which is a, a big kind of jelly blob, um, and they stick that onto the end of the female. And so as soon as they've mated, what we can do is we can just pick that thing off with forceps and dissect it apart and weigh. It's got lots of different bits to it, so we can weigh weigh the different bits and look at the relative sizes compared with the size of the male. So they produce a neat little package from their package. Exactly, (laughs) correct. (laughs) Excellent. So moving testicles aside for just a moment, James, you tantalisingly mentioned the other day that these male crickets have reproductive bits, shall we say, called titillators. I'm dying to know, what are titillators? Okay, well, we're we're still wondering ourselves, in fact. Um, These are structures which have been known about for hundreds of years. In fact, they're... they're, um, they're routinely used in, in identifying and, and sorting out um, the relationships between different species of crickets. So we know we know well they uh, we know they're there, but we just don't know what they're for. And these are kind of um, quite uh, tough, spiny structures which sit next to the genitals of the crickets, um, and and they vary massively. Some some of them some crickets don't have them. Um, other crickets have little kind of knobs, and other crickets have these like you know they, they go all the way from tiny little spi- uh, tiny little uh, um, uh, kind of hillocks to to these great kind of spiny knobby structures with with them um, you know teeth and spines and ridges and everything uh, and nobody really knows what they do they they kind of go in and out at the same time while the male is mating but we don't really know what they do um, so what we've been looking at is the way they affect uh, the mating time of the cricket and we found that um, crickets that have these titillator structures tend to mate for a hell of a lot longer than those crickets that don't have the same thing and we've been speculating about what that might be for like with, uh, with they could be using this long mating as a period of sizing up whether or not they want to give such a costly remember they're giving a big blob of jelly to the female um, well that's quite costly to produce so if the female's not good enough then they don't want to waste their time making and, and energy making that thing and giving it to the female so you might have to take a long time to size up whether the female is good enough Alternatively, the female might be trying to resist all the time, and the thing, the, the, this kind of horny structure, might might be holding her down, might be like an anchor to stop her getting away, while you transfer all of this stuff. So it's still uh, it's still very much up in the air what the precise function of these things is, but we've discovered that they're they're correlated with long mating times, and they also, yeah, they they may they may function as some kind of assessment tool. A horny structure with a mysterious function. Thank you, James, for a very stimulating discussion.
that was Dr. James Gilbert leading a titillating discussion on bush cricket romance with Dr. Julianne Popple. And schools, we'll send scouting parties to collect books and stuff, and men like you will teach the kids, not poems and rubbish, science, so we can get everything working. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. I really love cats, and I just want to hug all of them, but I can't, because that's crazy. I can't hug every cat. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about cats again. I just, I think about how many don't have a home and how I should have them. And I want them in a basket and I want little bow ties. I want them to be on a rainbow and just in my bed. And I just want a house full of them. And I just want to still roll around. Next up, here's the news with Larissa Subbas and Julianne Popple. This week, I took a trip down memory lane, literally. As I strolled down the suburban tree-lined street of Californian bungalows where I grew up, I noticed that along with the increase in for sale signs signifying empty nesters and the consequent influx of young families, almost every house had a considerable proportion of its roof occupied by glossy solar panels. Despite government initiatives, including a solar power rebate and now a solar credit scheme to encourage Australians to utilise the sun, the most widely available renewable energy source, Installing photovoltaic solar panels remains an expensive exercise, and even the best solar panels have an efficiency of merely 15-20%. to But why are solar panels so inefficient? Well, when a photon hits a solar panel with adequate energy, an electron in a silicon atom is given the energy it requires to escape and flow through the material as an electric current. However, If the photons have excessive energy, such as those in the UV end of the light spectrum, their heat will cause chaos in the material. Conversely, if photons have insufficient energy, such as those in the microwave or infrared range, they will move across the solar cell without interacting with any electrons at all. These lower energy photons constitute almost half of the sun's spectrum. Thus, there is no way solar panels can reach efficiencies beyond 50%. So, with approximately half of the sun's photons useless and high-energy photons creating destructive heat, the advent of nanotechnology is enabling the creation of a promising solution at Columbia University in New York. That is, a hybrid material based on quantum dots, semiconducting crystals only a few tens of nanometers across, designed to have defects which scatter phonons or vibrations of heat, while allowing the flow of electrons. Packed into a water-cold photovoltaic system that also uses heated water for energy, it is believed this material will enable solar panel systems to exceed 50% overall efficiency. But then, 
suggested by researchers at the University of Arizona in Tucson, there is the possibility of a material that could capture solar heat so well it could replace solar panels altogether. Cheap polymers called polyphenol ethers could be engineered to disrupt the flow of phonons while allowing the flow of electrons with an efficiency of 20 to 25 percent. Harvesting solar energy could become as simple as painting polyphenol ethers onto any surface one was intending to use for thermoelectric conversion. It's fascinating stuff, just how much the solar panels are being taken up and, and where the work is going. And it's interesting, the efficiencies, the way they get confused in the press between, well, when they compare the efficiencies of photovoltaics versus, say, the efficiencies of a car engine or a coal power plant or a nuclear power plant, when, of course, fuel efficiency and light conversion efficiency are two very different things. And, of course, the fuel efficiency of solar panels is 100% because there's no fuel. And coal power stations are only 30% fuel efficient. So although 20, 15 to 20 sounds quite low to a lot of people, it's not that much lower than coal, and you've got to dig coal up, and then you've got to deal with the waste which you don't have with the solar. Also, with this paint, it would be so much cheaper as well, so it wouldn't really matter how low efficiency it was because you could just put it everywhere and it would be so accessible. And that is the ultimate real efficiency Mm. for solar power, I think, is the cost. Once the cost is down, the fact that it's cheap and there is no fuel, it is really free energy where you just pay for your converter Mm. and your storage, cheap solar power just can't be stopped. That's true, because right now it's just limited to the few amount of people who can actually afford it, and then only a small surface area is actually getting that energy from the sun. How well can you remember a face? Recognising individual faces is something so critical in social interactions for humans and various other primate species, and yet some individuals find it difficult to remember a face. My boyfriend, for example, has trouble recognising faces. Legend has it that years ago, his sister decided to play a prank on him and after getting a radically different haircut, knocked at the front door, pretending to be a saleswoman. My boyfriend answered and failing to recognise his own sister, promptly told her he was not interested and refused to let her in the house. So you can imagine my amusement when this week I found out that there is a species of paper wasp that might have even better facial recognition skills. PhD student Michael Sheehan and Dr Elizabeth Tibbetts from the University of Michigan have used a series of associative learning experiments to demonstrate that the paper wasp, Polistes fuscatus, can learn to recognise faces better than other patterns or even photos of their own food species. They used T-shaped mazes in which the floor was slightly electrified except for a safe area. At the junction of the T-shaped maze, The wasps had a choice between left or right. Each arm had an associated wasp face sign and after some training the wasps were able to reliably associate the safe area with an image of an individual wasp face. They also tested the related species Polistes matricus and whilst this species could learn to associate simple patterns or food with the safe area, they could not learn to recognise individual wasp faces. The reason behind this difference likely lies in their different ecological backgrounds. Polistes matricus lives in colonies with only one queen, 
whereas Polestes fiscatus is a species of paper wasp that is very social, typical, typically living in colonies with multiple queens and with complex social hierarchies. Therefore, remembering a face is an important part of colony life. I guess that means you really don't want to get the wasps angry because they'll know who you are. <laughs> well, it's more a question of uh, wasps uh, recognising conspecifics. So I guess other individual wasps are the same species. But I guess you could train them to associate with other images as well. So, but I guess the, the main point of this study is that it's an important... It's important biologically for these, pe- these, these species to be able to recognise other individuals of the same species because you need to know who's your superior or who's inferior to you and how to behave accordingly. Whereas if you're just a wasp in a standard single colony with just one queen, it's less critical. Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or COP17, finished this weekend, climate change is on everyone's mind. Professor Anne Henderson-Sellers from Macquarie University wants you to show her what to do about it. I asked her to explain what Climate Fix Flix is. Well, as well as being a tongue twister, as you realise, the idea is to try to engage people in looking for solutions. So virtually everyone's talking about climate change. There are people who are still wanting to debate the science, which you know may or may not be a worthwhile activity. But all of the community groups, schools groups that I speak to around the country and indeed around the world ask me one question, and that is, what can I do? In what way can I contribute to trying to reduce this risk? And so I don't know the answer to that. There are lots of things that people can do, from planting trees, riding your bicycle, using public transport, flying less, all of these things. Um, We have solar collectors on our home, for example. However, what we thought we might do is try to engage people in actually answering that question, answering the question, what can I do? So the idea of this is it's a competition of movie shorts. You can be a professional filmmaker or you can be someone with a mobile phone who just goes out and shoots in the backyard. Whatever makes sense for you. But the goal is to transmit a solution, something that people that you know or people in your community or people that you think are squandering uh, greenhouse gases, fossil fuel at the moment could do to change how they behave that will make this less of a crisis in the future. So grab your mobile phone. The competition says between 30 seconds and five minutes. So these are real short movies. And what we're looking for is the best, the cleverest, the funniest, the most effective, the most persuasive any of those. So we've got a great panel, we've got great prizes, and what we want to do is really see 
what sorts of great solutions people can come up with. So good entertainment and also good solutions. So who's on the panel? Okay, well, the people that we're ready to go public about at the moment, Tim Flannery, who's the climate commissioner, uh, someone who's very knowledgeable about climate, also great communicator about climate and climate change and about Australia, because we're also interested in how climate change is going to affect Australia and what Australians can do about this. The other person that uh, we have on the panel uh, is a guy called Kimball Rendell, and he's been involved uh, for many years as a movie maker, and he's very interested in the science uh, and science fiction genres, so movies that people will know are the Matrix trilogy, and also that great movie, I, Robot, based on Isaac Asimov's science fiction uh, writings. And so Kimball knows a lot about how to put science across, so he's going to be looking at that. But we're also going to have other people in the movie industry, uh, as well as obviously people who know about climate change. And so one of the things that we hope will be um, a kind of pool for people to compete in this is that your um, entries, if they are competitive, will get seen by people in the Australian movie industry. And that's very important for people who want to try and break into that industry. Absolutely. Will these also be available on the internet? Yes. What we're going to do is that the current plan is that people submit them. We're using Vimeo to do that. And then there's going to be some shortlisting. And all of the movies that get shortlisted will get a highly commended prize. And those shortlisted movies will be shown at an event in Sydney that will be part of the Australian Film Festival. That's between the 7th and the 17th of March in Sydney. After the Sydney event, which I guess I'll be hosting, then we're going to put all of the highly commended movies online and ask people to vote. So anyone can vote around the country or around the world because this is also open for international entries. And so we're going to have a People's Choice event that will run about six weeks. After that, we'll know who the winners of the People's Choice Award is. And then we'll actually have another showing in Melbourne where we will highlight the winners of that People's Choice Award. And the winners, in addition to all this glory and all this exposure to people who know what to look for, do they win any prizes as well? Sure. We have cash prizes. The top one is $5,000. So the out-and-out -out winner will get $5,000, which is pretty nice, pretty helpful if you want to make your next movie short. We also have other prizes for the highly commended and some other smaller ones that we're going to give for, you know, perhaps most innovative. Or uh, we're also thinking about whether if young people enter, there might be uh, a special prize for them. The other thing that we have been offered, we haven't been able to make this public yet, but it will be on our website soon, is that we've been offered some um, experience in movie making and so we're getting one or two offers from within the movie industry and as soon as those are available those will also be prizes so they'll be on our website you must let me give the address oh, of the please. website okay so just go to www.greenscreen.org.au and green screen is a lot easier to say, say than climate <laughs> fix flicks <laughs> That's terrific. So you'll get training in making a film. Yes. And you'll get worldwide exposure 
and you'll appear at a film festival, yes. and you may even win money. That's correct. And all of those are pretty exciting, certainly very exciting for us. And from our point of view as the organisers, the most important thing is for us to get as many people to put in entries as possible because although it's exciting as a movie shorts competition, we need to bear in mind that the goal is to get people to change behaviour, to actually try to help resolve the climate change crisis and the more different ways we can get more the clever innovative ways that people can put together for actually solving this crisis the better we will all be informed so that's the main goal so please if you've got a great idea make a movie about it has to be really short so do that no big drama and then put it up online go to our website to see the details of how to do that but there's nothing very hard you have to just fill out a real quick form with your name and a brief description of your movie and then just go ahead and put it up there and then everyone will be able to see it that sounds wonderful. So basically you're crowdsourcing solutions. Solutions and also using that crowd to try to choose the best solutions too. I think that's a good way to use the intelligence of everybody and that's exactly what this problem needs. I hope so. Yep. Professor Anne Henderson-Sellers, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Anne Henderson-Sellers from Macquarie University talking about climate fix flicks. You can enter at www.greenscreen.com .org.au Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com, that's diffusion at 2SCR.com, and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Larissa Savas and Julianne Popple. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.
Yeah. <laughs>